God is good, amen? I have 30 minutes this morning. We have four speakers, and we cram them into two hours, and, and we're just going to fly this morning. How many of you are ready to fly this morning? So if you would, open with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 as our text this morning. I invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God. We're going to be doing a lot of up and down this morning. We're going to be keeping you loose. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, let's stand as we read God's Word. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." This is God's word. Amen? Amen. You may be seated this morning. My title for the session is Reforming Thinking. Reforming Thinking. Last night, Jason King gave us a great message on the reformation that first must take place in our hearts. That if we're going to get about the work of of reformation, we, we have to first get our hearts right before the Lord. Uh, It has to be based on our love for Christ, and our love for Christ, of course, is based on his love for us. And we need reformation in our world because we need revival in our world. We need an outpouring of the Spirit of God like never before. And reformations always precede revivals. A reformation is a recovery of the word of God. The cry of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority, is the infallible rule of faith. It's a call. All reformation is a call back to faithfulness to the word of God, to bring every area of life under the authority of God's word. And so reformations proceed revivals Because the preaching of God's word brings conviction and repentance with faith. We see this in Josiah's Reformation in 2 Kings 22 
where they were cleaning out the temple. They were getting rid of the idols, all the paganism that had built up in the temple. They were removing it. And under all of that was a book, the law of God. And they took this book, they took the law of God to the king Josiah and the, the servant says, I have found the book. That is the cry of reformation. We have to find the book. We have to get back to the book. And as, as, as Josiah read what was in there and he saw how far they had strayed, he tore his clothes and he led the whole nation in a great revival and renewal. We see the same principle at place in the apostles' day. In Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter preaching to the crowds in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 3 verse 18, he says, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that's the word of God written in the book, calling people back to what the prophets had said, that this Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. If we're going to see revival, it's always preceded by a call back to faithfulness to God by being faithful to his word. And of course, we see this, the same thing in the Protestant Reformation. As Luther nails his 95 Thesis to the door of the castle there at Wittenberg, the, the, the things where the church had strayed from the word of God, and God has used throughout the history of the church men like Luther and men like Calvin and men like Knox and Whitfield and Wesley and Edwards and Spurgeon who called God's people back to the book. And that's what we need in our day today. A call back to the book to the word of God, to being faithful to the king by submitting to his word. This is what will precede revival, right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. That, that's bringing ourselves back into submission to God by being in submission to his word. And so we want to get about this process of, of reformation so that we might see revival. And we have eight sessions here for us over the next two days about different areas of getting back to the book. What does the word of God say about this and this and this and this and this? And my session this morning is what does God's word say about our thinking? You see, if we're going to get about this, this process, if we're going to start this process of revival, like Jason said last night, we have to get our hearts right. We, we have to sort out our affections, our, our love, our motivations. And, and once we have that, the place then we must start is our thinking, the way that we think. The way that we think needs reformation. The way that we think needs to be brought under the authority of the word of God. So let's go back to this text here in Colossians chapter 2. Look here with me at verse 3 and 4. In verse 3 he says that in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he says I'm telling you this truth so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He says, I'm concerned about your thinking. 
I'm concerned that you've believed some things that are not true, that you're being led astray by, by things that seem plausible, by things that may seem good here on the surface. Then he comes back to this again in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So who is Paul writing to? Well, he's writing to, we know, look at chapter 1, to the saints who are at Colossae and the faithful brothers, he says. So he's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. What does this tell us? This tells us that it is possible for Christians to be born again, to be spirit-filled, to love Jesus, but be deceived in the way that they think. To not think like Christians. To not have their mind and their thoughts in submission to the word of God. It's possible for Christians to be deluded with false arguments. To be led astray and captivated by worldly philosophies and ideas. This is a warning that the Apostle Paul gives to the church that we need to hear in our day. And if we're going to get about this process of reformation... We have to make abundantly sure that we are thinking like Christians. we got to think like Christians. We can't think like the rest of the world. We're not like the rest of the world. We don't share the values of the rest of the world. We love them. We're called to reach them, to serve them. But we do not think like them. So how does a Christian think? How is it that Paul wants us? To think, well, if you look at verse 6, verse 6, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The core of Christian thinking is simply this Jesus is Lord. This is the foundational Christian idea that is under everything. Jesus is Lord. He says, get back to this. You receive Christ Jesus as Lord, therefore walk in him. Be built up in him. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify, that is set apart, Christ as Lord in your hearts. So it's possible for a Christian to believe upon Christ, but not to have sanctified, not to have set him apart as Lord in their hearts, in their minds, and in their life. This is what Christian thought looks like. Jesus is Lord. All true Christian thought, belief, practice stems from and is built upon this foundation. Jesus is Lord. And so if we're going to get about the work of reformation, it must be done, hear me, in full submission to the Lordship of Christ. We don't just get about reforming things because we don't like the way that they are. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what we like. Because Jesus is Lord. You, You remember Jason King last night, his message When he became pastor, he had people coming up to him saying, what's your vision for the church? 
And finally he got fed up with it and said, who cares about my vision? What's his vision for the church? Because he is Lord. And what we have all throughout Christianity today in the Western world especially is visionary leaders who have a vision for the church that is not submitted to the lordship of Christ. Therefore, they've built ministries and churches that operate according to philosophical ideas and captivated by empty deceits and and human traditions. And so the church today, like never before, needs a reformation. A calling back to what does the word say and how do we operate in full submission to the lordship of Christ. This is the distinction between Christian thought and secular thought. Between Christian thought and pagan thought. It is that Jesus is Lord. And so if Christians can live like pagans because they don't think like Christians... Can we not do ministry like pagans? Is it possible to do Christian ministry like a pagan? Well, yes, it is if we're not thinking in our hearts, if we have not sanctified Christ in our hearts that he is Lord. And so we're going to submit our ministry. We're going to submit our lives. We're going to submit everything to his authoritative word. And so there are many today who do ministry like pagans because... They are not submitted to the lordship of Christ. I brought to you this morning 10 errors that happen in ministry that are a result of non-Christian thinking. Again, true Christian thought starts with Jesus as Lord. And there are many today who are even in ministry who lead their ministries based on their own vision with themselves as Lord. And Jesus even says... In my kingdom, the leaders aren't supposed to lord it over. But there are many who have set themselves up as lord. And so let me share with you these 10 errors that result from non-Christian thinking. I just whittled it down to 10 because I'm on a time crunch this morning. I'm not going to have time to elaborate on on all of these. I would love to put up video clips of them this morning. I don't have time for that. Pastor Sam yesterday morning mentioned that, you know, every time he gets on Facebook, he's like, what are you doing? And I thought he was channeling me because that's what I, happens to me too. First thing, first ministry error that results from non-Christian thinking is this, apologizing for what is in the Bible. I saw, I saw a pastor this year of one of the fastest growing churches in America say he was teaching on biblical sexuality and he's he's holding to saying that biblical sexuality is as God designed it between one man and one woman good great commendable wonderful that that shouldn't be exceptional in our day and age unfortunately it is nevertheless he's he's trying to hold to a Christian biblical sexual ethic great but then he goes on to say I don't know why God did it this way. I, I, if I was writing the Bible, I would tell, if I was advising Jesus, I would have told him, hey, can you put some other stuff in there for people that don't feel the way I do? That was his exact words. This guy has books, Christian books all over the place. His books sold in Christian bookstores. 
apologizing for what's in the Bible. I'm sorry, is this the word of the king or not? Who is the king? It is Christ, not us. But we see it all the time. That's a very explicit form of it. But there's a soft form of it as well, where there's this, this sort of, uh, if, if it's not apologizing for what's in the Bible, it's an embarrassment about it. We're embarrassed by it. Why, why, did, why did it have to say it that way? Goodness gracious. Well, where does that stem from? It stems from non-Christian thinking. It stems from thinking that hasn't fully apprehended that you're not Lord and that Christ is. The second is that treat, they, you, you will treat God's word like any other word. God's word is just an option in the pantheon of ideas. God's word is presented as one way of living, a great way of living. And hey, you, you ought to live this way. You ought to, you ought to consider these thoughts and, and maybe try them out. And, and, and I think you, you would, you would, it would show you that you know, they're true if you just try them out. But it is not presented as authoritative commands from Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus says, teach them to obey what you feel like teaching them to obey. What the things that you like in this book? No, what does he say? Teach them to obey all I have given, all I have put in there, all I have commanded. Commanded. The, 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 God's word is not an, it's not options. It's not take it or leave it. And so when we present God's word and don't command the commands of scripture, don't call for the, Repentance, don't call from turning from sin. It's just submitted as an option to try. Where does that stem from? Well, it stems from the fact that I haven't sanctified Christ apart as Lord. Therefore, his word is above every other word, even my own. Number three, there are evangelistic appeals to give Jesus a chance. Just give Jesus a chance. Give him a chance and, and you'll see how awesome he is. Listen, Jesus is not the nerdy guy in high school who could never get a date. <laughs> Jesus doesn't need the cheerleader's mom to, to convince her, you know, that you just give him a chance, you know. Have pity on him. We're not called to call people to have pity upon Christ. He is the Lord of glory. He is the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven from Daniel chapter 7. Stop with this give Jesus a chance nonsense. Number four, we see people trying to sell people on Jesus. It's because you don't believe Jesus is Lord. You, you feel like you have to sell them on the idea of Christ. That comes across as, look what he's done for me. And your life will be better too with Christ. Now, is that true? Probably. Could your life get worse if you become a Christian? We all groan. I mean, it's very possible that when, when I, I mean, I see it time and time again, when people come to faith in Christ, all hell breaks loose in their life. And they're sitting there scratching, I thought you said my life was going to get better if I gave Jesus a try. The writer of Hebrews doesn't call, call them to 
you know, just, just, you just got to keep trying Jesus and things are going to get better. He says, no, Jesus is better. And you have him. And so whatever you have to endure, he's worth it. He's worth it. So stop with this sell, selling people on Jesus. Just give him a chance. Your life will get better if you serve Christ. No, in fact, guess what that is? That's called idolatry. That's idolatry. You see, because it says you can, you can use Christ to get what you really want, a better life. So a better life is your idol and use Christ to get it. So that, that's just idolatry. And it's the very idolatry that must be confronted in evangelism, not encouraged. Number five, we see an error that results from uh, not setting apart Christ as Lord of, from non-Christian thinking is an irreverent attitude towards God. Pastor Mike was praying that this morning. He didn't know where I was going. He hadn't seen my notes. I just typed them up this morning, so there's no way he could have seen them. But he prayed that very thing. God, that you would fill us with your fear. That we would have a sense of your holiness. That, That we would have a sense that when we present your word, when we gather as your people, that we are treading on sacred ground. That this is not a common thing, that, that there are souls hanging in the balance, that there is eternity on the line, that this is not just religious games. You see, our God is a consuming fire. Yet, we encourage a casual atmosphere in worship. We encourage it in a million different ways. We don't even realize that we're doing it. We treat the holy as common. And it's no wonder people then don't take worship seriously. Where is the weightiness of the glory of God? Where is the sense of woe is me? I'm in the presence of a holy God. Where is that sense of God's holiness that would, would cause us to say woe is me and then look to the grace of Christ? To have our hearts transformed with thanksgiving and gratitude. Number six, we find a church that's driven by an entertainment model. I mean, this is everywhere today. We have churches showing movies on Sunday morning, preaching, preaching sermons off of movies. Now, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to go to hell if I went to the movies. That's just the truth. Maybe that was a little extreme. But now we've gone to the other extreme where we're showing the movies in church. My God, help us. Talk about the pendulum swinging. Should not the worship gathering be used to stir true believers' affections for Christ, the Redeemer of their soul? We should be reminded when we gather together of his constant greatness, of his work of redemption, of the blood that he spilt and the price that he paid for sin. This should cause us to mourn deeply over our sin, but rejoice greatly over his grace. Our affection should be properly stirred for the one who is holy, for the one who himself is a consuming fire. And that should propel us and energize us with the desire to wage war with our personal sin and to pursue holiness. And all of these entertainment-driven model churches that are showing movies and and doing Easter plays with Marvel comic themes, 
I mean, how many times do I have to see Batman crucified or Iron Man crucified? Have you not seen this? Look it up. It's insanity. Listen, Batman can't save you. Iron Man can't save you. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, can save us. All of this nonsense does not exalt Christ. It doesn't exalt the name above every name. Instead, it brings into the worship gathering other names, much lesser names. However, these names that we're bringing into our worship gatherings are names that the world places above the name of Jesus. And to do this kind of nonsense in church is to think and behave with the values of the world. When you leave this kind of entertainment, you're not thinking about Christ and the story of all stories. No. You're thinking about all these movies, all these cheap imitations that will not stir your affections for holiness. This isn't even to mention that the majority of movies today are filled with antichrist, sin, depravity, debauchery, and glorifies it. And we bring this garbage into the church. God help us. We need a reformation. No one's going to be changed by seeing Iron Man or Batman. Iron Man is not seated on the throne this morning. It is Christ. Number seven is an embracing of subjectivism where it's just constantly this thing of, well, what does this mean to you? What is, we read this Bible verse. What does it mean to you? Well, there's no question about what it means. The, the person who wrote it knew what it meant. That, that's what we got to get to. Not what does it mean to you? What did it mean to them? What does it mean to God? Or worse than subjectivism is then a postmodern denial of truth. We, we can't really even know what this means. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it means this. Maybe it doesn't. Who knows? No, what did Luke say? I'm writing these things so that you may know. So that you may know. That you may have full assurance of what is true. Number eight, I know I'm moving through this quick, a reliance upon behavior modification techniques, not a reliance upon the Holy Spirit's power to transform lives. Sermons today are filled with New Age psychobabble, trying to self-help you to modify your behavior. Listen, but that's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't tell us we need to modify our behavior. It tells us we need a new heart. The essential problem is not that we do bad things, Man's essential problem is that he is dead in sin. We don't need modification. We need a resurrection. And it's only the preaching of the gospel that can produce new life in hearts that are dead. We don't need tips and tricks. We need a resurrection. Number nine, preaching the gospel of salvation and not the gospel of the kingdom of King Jesus. This is everywhere today. Was just add a little bit of Jesus to your life and you'll get to heaven. Just you, you live your life the way you want. You just got to add a little bit of Jesus, make a profession of faith, and you'll be on your way to heaven. But what does Jesus say? No, Jesus says, come and die. No, just add a little bit of me to your life. No, I am your whole life. Take up your cross and follow me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ 
who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the power of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Number 10, finally, is pragmatism. And this is simply defining success by what works, not by what is faithful. This is just whatever works. Whatever gets people in the pews. That's, that's the ultimate goal. Whatever works. And the preaching of the gospel, guess what that does? It makes people uncomfortable. It, it, it makes people uneasy. And, and, and so that doesn't work according to people who want to build mega churches and fill pews. Look, I want to reach people. But we're not going to reach them with Iron Man. Guess what? They already have that. Hello? All of this is the seeker-sensitive model. All ten of these. Just seeker-sensitive model. These are the hallmark teachings of this whole debauched movement. Pioneered by disgraced pastor of Willow Creek in Chicago, Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels, disgraced because of his marital infidelity, pioneered this model. And he was abundantly clear that he adopted all of this nonsense from Peter Drucker, a business guru. And he became one of his disciples. Read it. I've read his books. He talks about it. He says, I've adopted his model of business for the church. Those who adopt this model would go into a community and they would survey the community and they would say, what would you like to see in a church? And then they would build a ministry program that targeted those desires. And guess what? Shockingly, as it turns out, not on the top of the list from sinful men was preaching against sin. Shocker. You go and survey sinful men on what they want in church. It's not the gospel. Turns out they want more of the world. And so this consumer-driven market approach to church, it is a cancer that has, nearly, has infected nearly every strain of evangelicalism in America. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul doing this? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul going into Ephesus, asking the Ephesians, hey, I'm starting this new thing called the church. What would you like to see in it? Hey, you pagan worshipers of Artemis, what would you like to see? Well, I'd like to see nice parking out front, easy in, easy out. There's a lot of crowds down there at uh, the temple. Uh, you know, it, it, it would not have been Christ. It's foolishness. It's nonsense. It's ridiculous. But this is the model that drives evangelicalism in the church today. When you ask the world what it thinks the church should look like, unsurprisingly, the, church thinks, the, the world thinks the church should look just like the world. And that's exactly what so much of the church has been working on for the past 40 years, making the church look like the world. And guess what? Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. So that so much of what passes for Christianity today is secularism that has been baptized and repackaged with Christian lingo. And the seeker-sensitive model is a total failure. It filled buildings stadium-sized buildings, but didn't produce disciples. How do I say that? Look at our country today. By every measure, we are worse off since this cancer has taken root, and we need drastic intervention in the church today. And this model fails, hear me, because it is not submitted to the lordship of Christ by being submitted to his word. 
You wonder if the pastoral epistles are even in their Bibles. It's fundamentally wrong on the doctrine of man, that man is dead in sin. The whole approach is to appeal to the, the sinful desires of fallen man and that somehow that will lead them to Christ, showing them how Christ will give sinful man what he really desires. This is idolatry of self. This is idolatry repackaged as Christianity. Man is spiritually dead, bankrupt, hates God. And only the preaching of the gospel, the bloody cross, the empty tomb can resurrect dead souls. Jesus is Lord. He is not a product we're trying to sell. He's, we're not trying to get people to try Jesus or to make them the Lord of their life. Jesus is Lord. The gospel is not a sales pitch. It is a command to bow to Christ. He is Lord. Not that he will be in the distant future. He is now presently Lord. And so we in ministry cannot fall into the trap of professing Christ as Lord with our mouths and then going on and living and leading our lives and our ministries like we are Lord. He is Lord. We need a reformation. Believe it or not, I had another 10 points for you this morning. Yeah. I'm trying to set a good example because I have three other guys following me. Okay. Who's the pastor? Oh, I am. Okay. So, uh, listen, in a day when we desperately need reformation and revival, it should come as no surprise then that Satan has his own counterfeit for reformation. I mentioned it. Uh, I didn't mention it. But this, this counter-reformation or this counterfeit reformation is called deconstruction. Now, I don't know if this idea has made it to your foreign field yet, but if you're pastoring in the States, you know and you're all familiar with this trim, uh, trend. Deconstruction is essentially when a person begins to question their faith, continuing on that path until they lose their faith altogether. And there are whole communities online set up and organized to help people through this process, to take people that have questions about their faith and to have that ultimately end up with them bankrupting, making shipwreck of their faith. It's diabolical, it's satanic, it's a, but it's a demonic counterfeit to reformation. I want to give you a quick, super quick, I'm not even going to elaborate on these. We're going to run through these so fast. I just want to sew them into you. You think on them. But I want to show you that there are similarities between deconstruction and reformation because deconstruction is a satanic counterfeit. And we have to make sure that we are reforming, not deconstructing. Because there's many people who thought they set out thinking we're reforming. And really, they were falling into the trap of deconstructing. So, first of all, deconstruction approaches God's word with skepticism. But reformation approaches God's word in faith. Deconstruction stands over God's word in judgment. But reformation comes under God's word in submission. Both start with very similar questions. So it's very subtle, the difference. But they're very, very different questions. Deconstruction says, does God's word really say? 
echoing Genesis chapter 3. Hath God said? Does God's word really say? Reformation's question is so similar but vastly different. What does God's word really say? And this is how people can be on the path of deconstruction, thinking on, they're on the path of reformation. Both make appeals to the original languages of Scripture, to the Hebrew and the Greek. But deconstruction does it to undermine Scripture's clear teaching, while reformation does it to make the Scripture's teaching clear. Deconstruction asks questions in pursuit of license. How, 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 how much can I sin? How much can I get away with? Reformation asks their questions in pursuit of faithfulness. Number six, deconstruction seeks to cast doubts. Reformation seeks to build faith. Deconstruction, number seven, seeks to justify oneself. I want to prove myself right. Reformation seeks to be justified in Christ, knowing our sinful condition. Number eight, deconstruction is done in the power of the Antichrist spirit. But Reformation is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a real demonic spiritual force behind deconstruction. And it's the Antichrist spirit. Number nine, deconstruction leads to a denial of Christ, which is death. Reformation leads to revival, which is new life in the spirit. And finally, number 10, both the deconstructionist and the reformation are troublemakers because they disrupt the status quo. So just because someone's asking questions, it doesn't mean that they're anti-Christ. They could, be reform they could be trying to align themselves more with the word of God. But it also doesn't mean they're doing that. They could be on this other path. So look at these. Meditate on these. Is your, is your desire to build faith or is it to cast doubts? You may think you're pursuing reformation, but you may really be in the process of deconstructing. If it's not building faith, if it's not submitting to Christ as Lord, if it's not coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit... If it's not saying, I, I want to know what God's word really says instead of, does God's word really say this? It's all about the heart. Is Christ Lord in your heart? Examine your heart. Examine your motives. If Christ is not Lord, then you are not reforming. You are deconstructing. Listen, Jesus is Lord. This is where we must start. This is where we must end. This is what we must do, everything in between. If we're ever going to see revival, we have to have all of our thinking begin with the lordship of Christ. Every area of thought and life brought under his submission. For there to be revival, hear me, the salt must be salty. The light must shine bright. We will not change the world by becoming like the world or wanting to be liked by the world. If we're going to see reformation, we have to be salty again. We must be salty if we want to see revival. God, give us our salt back. 
invite you to stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. It is the truth. It is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. Lord, examine our hearts. If there's any area that is not submitted to you and to your lordship, I pray that you would convict us of it right now and that you would help us to live in the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray.